Money Talk is hosted by Annex Wealth Management, a fee-only registered investment advisor. Important information about the qualifications and business practices of Annex is available at AnnexWealth.com. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk. Please consult with a qualified fiduciary advisor about your specific situation. Welcome to Money Talk, the longest-running weekly personal finance radio show in Wisconsin. Annex Wealth Management is a proud member of the Barron's Top Advisor List and the Financial Times Top 300 List. Know the difference. Now, here are your hosts, Dave Spano and Mark Oswald. Welcome. It's Money Talk, Saturday, June 29th, first week in a summer fest, but really we're looking more like at Japan for the G20, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Let's start, Dave Spano, with that week in review. You know, you think about where we are, you know, this is the mid part of the year, and, you know, we're up 17% on the S&P as we get to this point, and that's a pretty good start, particularly you think about where we were in the fourth quarter, guys, and, you know, it was it was a bloodbath. We've responded, and now we have to figure out where we go from here. But uh, 17% up uh, S&P to the state, Derek, that usually portends well for the rest of the year. Yeah, it's actually the best start for the S&P since the late 1990s. And, and historically, when you finish the first four months of a year up, uh, you tend to rally through year end. So the market is digesting a lot of uncertainty in a very positive way. This week was more or less a consolidation ahead of that all-important G20 meeting that, between Trump and his Chinese counterpart on, on Saturday morning. And Mark, you know, that really is a big story. We've been talking about, obviously, trade and tariffs for a long time. This is an opportunity to at least put some framework together for these two presidents to maybe move forward. Well, for sure, because you're starting to think about what impact ultimately will this have on the consumer, when does the consumer have to start to bear the cost of the tariffs? And if that happens, what does that do to consumer spending? What does that do to GDP? Those are good questions. And I, and I think that maybe if you start to see some positives, we certainly don't think we're going to see an agreement coming out of Japan. But at least if there's a framework, perhaps, or at least a agreement to continue to move the conversation forward and a delay of the additional tariffs that are on the doorstep, that would be a positive. It would be a positive. And we'll see if that actually happens. You know, you have to think of where we are politically as well. And if you're a bit of a cynic, you could say that President Trump wants to delay this as long as he can right. because he wants it to rally closer to election time next November. And President Xi could be politically waiting to see if Trump is even going to be the president and maybe he can negotiate with somebody else. Derek, there's a lot of things at work. Yeah. And then you, and then you add the uncertainty. You know, you saw two Democratic debates, lots of issues floated, uh, some of which were contrary to the pro-growth policies we've seen from this administration. But I think the most interesting thing right now is, you know, you see the bond market with a 10-year trading right around 2%, suggesting that global growth is slowing and so on, while the U.S. market is near its all-time highs. What I've started to think now is the bond market is really adjusting to changes in the underlying backdrop. There's a lot of debt out there. So the neutral rate, the rate that effectively can constrain strain growth is probably lower than it's been in the past. I think the bond market's been reacting to that, as well as incredibly low rates overseas. I just saw today that Deutsche Bank is suggesting uh, they're going to lay off one-fifth of their employees over the next couple of years, which just gives you some sense of the weakness that we're seeing in Europe, which has resulted in over $13 trillion of sovereign debt 
uh, with negative yields. Yeah, so you talk about things that we have been, conversation points up to this point, the rally in the equities markets, what's happening overseas, trades and tariffs, and of course, the Federal Reserve and, and what we can expect in the next perhaps 30 days, Mark, of maybe a, maybe a move there. Yeah, towards the end of July, we're going to get the next FOMC meeting. And a lot of people are talking about a rate cut at that meeting. It yet, it's yet to be seen, right, guys? I mean, that's not for sure, even though some of the markets are predicting 100% chance of yeah, a rate cut. Of course, cut. that makes me cynical yeah, right there sure. anytime I see 100%. Sure, but. for sure. So that's the end of, of July and then mid-September. So there are two meetings there and then one in December, which the Fed could take some action at any one or all of those meetings. But it'll be interesting to see for sure, Derek, what the Fed does, because that's certainly going to impact both the bond markets and the stock market. It's really incredible when you think about it, because, you know, in the first quarter, GDP came in at 3.1%. Nominal GDP is up 5.1% from a year ago versus a 4.8% annual rate the past two years. So the U.S. economy is currently very strong. Although this week we saw a consumer confidence number that was very disappointing. The estimate was for 131. It came out at 121, the lowest reading we've had in several years. And that's been one of the linchpins of the bullish scenario because with the U.S. so dominated by consumer spending with 70% of GDP related to it, the consumer's confidence really is key going forward. And these trade tariffs, you know, only lead to uncertainty in the business community as well. So the Fed is essentially saying they're going to backstop this economy. Does look likely we'll see a rate cut in July, despite the fact that the current economy is doing quite well. Derek Felsky, Chief Investment Officer, Annex Wealth Management. It is 1013. This is Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management. Our website, AnnexWealth.com. Click that Get Started button and get going on that free portfolio analysis. Take a couple of minutes and uh, you'll get it going next week. Again, AnnexWealth.com. Custom tailored investment and retirement planning from a fee only fiduciary. Know the difference. This is Money Talk on WTMJ. We're back. It's Money Talk, Saturday, June 29th. Hey, how was your camping trip, guys? Well, yeah. <laughs> so, okay, really. Thursday, the huge storm rolled in. Of course, you know, yesterday was no picnic either, but you got power knocked out, Mark Oswald. We and did. So did you, Dave Swallow. You know, and we don't live together. You know, obviously, <laughs> right, we're sure. in different think, communities all together. Well, listen, I don't <laughs> think I've ever seen Mark Oswald unshaven, but Friday I saw him and it didn't look like a razor touched his face. Well, I was saving the electric for the important thing, so I had the battery back up on my beer refrigerator, but that, <laughs> right. that was Mark, it. Yeah. Mark, that's called ice. Yeah, that's right, the bad. That's the backup. You know, we talked in the last segment about the Federal Reserve. Obviously, we need to do that because that determines so many things and valuations, not only in the bond market, but in the equity market as well. You look at what the 10-year yield is showing right now, as well as the yield on the S&P, the dividend yield on the S&P 500. And anytime those are parapasu, that is usually good for equities. And here we are, Derek, in a really good rate. It is, and, and the dislocation is even more extreme when you think about the earnings yield on stocks. So, for example, with the 10-year trading at 2%, you compare that to the earnings yield on the S&P, which is basically just flipping the P-E ratio upside down. That's at about 6, so roughly three times the rate. And historically, when you've seen that kind of disparity, the stock market has done quite well, averaging an annual return north of 10%. So, Tina is clearly back in vote. By Tina, I mean there is no alternative. 
I mean, many years ago, we were talking about CD rates at zero, so stocks looked really good, dividend payers in particular. CD rates have moved up, so that is somewhat of a headwind for equities. But by and large, our investment community continues to favor equities over fixed income of all varieties. That also doesn't consider capital appreciation. So you do have the ability for stock prices to continue to go up. We talked about the returns in the first half of the year, about 17% on the S&P 500, 20% on the NASDAQ. So the broad markets have done very well. So you have a better return on the stock investments, plus the fact that you have capital appreciation. And now to talk about valuations a little bit, Derek, not just you know in comparison, but where we are and where our expectations are. When I was managing the tech fund in 2000, the S&P was trading at 31 times forward earnings and interest rates were at 6%. Currently, the interest rates are at 2% and the S&P is trading at about 18 times forward. And that would suggest that valuations are more fair. Right? They, they are fair and I think you really have to view assets in context. And so when we build a balanced portfolio, we are tilted towards equities because they offer the capital appreciation mark mentioned as well as, as higher dividend yields. As an example, as a backdrop this week, Micron reported, Micron's a DRAM manufacturer and it boosted sentiment in the chip sector and actually suggested that the second half uh, will be stronger. Now, of course, they could be negatively impacted if this tariff situation escalates. But, you know, names like Qualcomm and Intel offer anywhere from 3 to 5% dividend yields uh, with the possibility of, of capitalizing on the expansion of 5G technology over the next three to five years. So there are lots of great companies out there. there some of them are more reasonably bio than others. Technology obviously offers many opportunities because, you know, it tends to be a winner-take-all market. You know, I look at the portfolio and feel pretty good about what we're holding, given the interest rates that exist and the dividends those companies offer. You know, moving away from technology, Mark, healthcare continues to be a conversation. You know, we all know that 10,000 baby boomers are retiring on a daily basis, and there has to be some uh, healthcare, and in, in not only where you're going to get that, be it you know, real estate investments, for example, healthcare real estate investments, technology, uh, equipment makers, this is a big part of, uh, you know, it's now one-fifth of the economy. It is. And when we look at our portfolios and where we've been tactical for a number of years, healthcare has been one of those areas. And when I say tactical, we're just a little overweight there when you look at the index itself. And that has really paid off in our portfolios. And this becomes a political conversation at some point in time. It's interesting to look at the debates over the last couple of nights this week and what was being said by some of the candidates, because it will impact that sector if some of those policies come to pass. But in the meantime, Dave, you're absolutely right. I mean, people are still getting health care. People are going to the doctor. People are aging, and you know that that's going to create a demand that's going to be there for a long time. And with thirty seconds left, Eric, you know another another sector that we do watch very closely are financials. Yeah, the financial stocks have really kind of languished recently. Uh, but the underlying fundamentals there are are reasonable. The price-to-book values of these companies are very low. Um, they're buying back stock. They offer attractive dividends, names like Bank America, J.P. Morgan, Citicorp, and the like. They have been troubled recently by the inversion of the yield curve because banks tend to borrow short and lend long. And when the yield curve is flat, they have less in terms of net interest margins. But the valuations there are, are reasonable. And I feel that's a sector that can do well if we start to see a pickup in the economy in the second half. Not bad. 31 seconds. All right. 10. 21. This is Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management, website AnnexWealth.com. Up next, 401k mistakes to avoid. If you've left a job, what do you do with your old 401k? That's next on Money Talk. Team, tech, trust, and a fee-only fiduciary model that works in your best interest. Can your advisor say that? This is Money Talk on WTMJ. Know the difference? It's Team Tech Trust. Trust comes from being a fee-only fiduciary. 
Tom Parks, Director of Retirement Plan Services, is back. Welcome back. Always good to be here. Thanks for having me. This is a team segment. We want to remind business owners or CFOs or HR professionals or everybody else at Annex Wealth Management, we can assist you making sure that 401k is a huge benefit because it's important, right? It's something that helps attract, it helps retain employees. Yeah, we've even been seeing more people who don't yet have one asking us about implementing one because prospective employees are asking about it throughout the interview process. So yeah, it's a big deal. Folks listening out there, if you got a new job recently, congratulations. If you had a 401k in your old job, congratulations because you were doing it right. But don't make a couple of very common mistakes as you settle into that new gig. And number one would be leaving your 401k at your old employer. Why is that a mistake? Well, you're not working there anymore. You don't want to have five, six different accounts at all these different places because believe it or not, people forget about them here and there, uh, which I can't relate to. I don't know how you could have 10 grand sitting in an account somewhere and forget about it, but people do. Um, The other thing though is those accounts aren't really working together toward that common goal. So you might as well either bring it with you to your new employer or roll it into an IRA. Just don't leave it where it is. Another mistake would be rolling your 401k into your employer's, into your new employer's plan, but not taking the time to pick the right investment choices. There, there should be an advisor at the new place. You know, your new employer should have someone like we do. You know, we sit down with each employee and we help them through that process. One of the things when we're helping people enroll in a new plan is we'll ask them, you know, where did you work before? Did you have a 401k over there? Do you need help rolling that into here? And whether you're just enrolling in the plan or rolling money from a prior account, you should always pay attention to what's going on with your investments. And getting help with that, I think, is a is a big thing, especially with all the stuff that's in 401k plans. You have target date funds, you have broader menu. A lot of times people aren't sure which is the best approach for them. It's good to have someone who knows a thing or two giving you some advice in that regard. Another mistake would be not making it sting just a little. And you've talked about this in the past. As we reach the middle of the year, you've got semi-annual quarterly enrollment. So I've been doing a lot of meetings with employees lately. And that's the number one bit of advice I always give people. You know, look at the amount you're putting in. If it doesn't hurt at least a little, then you're not putting in enough. And I will stick to that for the rest of my life. It's not always super scientific. You know, there are guidelines. People say you should be saving between 10 and 15%. Those are all very good things. But an absolute minimum rule is if it doesn't hurt a little, you're not doing enough. Let's switch gears and talk to business owners or the CFOs or the HR professionals or anybody involved in benefits. And we get it. You guys are really busy doing what you're doing. And But part of that is making sure your employees have the kinds of benefits that help retain them. So Tom, are some 401k programs out there, are they kind of like off the shelf and they don't really do the trick? I mean, do they, when, when people, when a company would set something up, depends on where they get yeah, it, where they get the help. Right. Very often. And some of it is just, this is the way we've always done it. So when we come across new clients, First thing we do is we look at the investment lineup that they have, and then we look at the plan structure. You know, what are your eligibility requirements? What are your entry dates? And, you know, is there a company contribution? If so, how is that structured? Things like that. And so often we have, we encounter scenarios where it is not optimal, right? And so we get into the conversation of, well, why do you have this? Well, Joe set it up 13 years ago, and, and there's been so much cool stuff happening in the 401k industry over the last three years, over the last 10 years, it's like a completely different thing. So if you haven't been paying attention, if you don't have someone who really understands 401k plans in your corner, keeping you apprised of all this stuff, you're undoubtedly missing out on something. It's not that you should necessarily be changing your plan all the time, but you should be aware of what's out there so that when the time comes and you want to take advantage of it, you can. Somebody needs to maintain it, 
or keep an eye on it. It's a responsibility for sure, but can that be a burden sometimes? You know what? This is where your service providers become really important. So, you know, we obviously provide advisory services. We help plan sponsors figure out, you know, what are your responsibilities? Are you doing them? We help on the investment side. But then there's the record keeper. So when you, you know, when people ask you who does your 401k, you always think of the website that you go to and the statements that you get. There's that. Um, and then there's, you know, administrative help. Payroll is a big thing. So if your payroll company or the service that you use doesn't coordinate real well with the record keeper, that can make it burdensome. Um, so it can be. Those are questions that we ask. You know, we'll ask who's your payroll provider. I always get a funny look when I ask that early on in the relationship. And they're like, "What do you care?" They say, "Well, because it can have an impact on this relationship. You know, our ability to to help you might be hindered by a clumsy setup." So Annex Wealth Management is a fiduciary, and when it comes to investment firms, that's kind of rare. However, company owners, CFOs, HR professionals, they too are fiduciaries when it comes to this. Right, and that's the thing. So we talked. We just had a conversation about this recently. We were. Talking to someone saying, you know, we can accept fiduciary responsibility. There are two different types. There's a 321 and a 338. It gets very boring. But what I said to them is don't forget that no matter what we do as a fiduciary, we can never absolve you of all of your fiduciary responsibilities. And so that's a big thing that we do. Education, obviously, is a huge thing for Annex. We usually think about participants and educating them. But plan sponsors, plan fiduciaries, a huge part of my responsibility is to help them understand what they are never off the hook for and help make sure that they're maintaining that stuff. Tom, you and your team, ready to help, right? Absolutely. We love doing this stuff. You know, it's kind of a weird thing. People are like, oh, you're so weird. You like doing that. I love it. Uh, 401ks are a unique animal. They're very intricate. They're constantly changing. We're here to help. We enjoy doing it. You know, fun is a big thing for me. I do too many hours of work every week to not be having some fun doing it. I walked by a meeting of yours the other day and there was a lot of laughter. Well, hey, you know what? If you spend this much time doing something, you might as well have fun doing it. But yeah, we we know our stuff here. So we're here to help. You've currently got a 401k plan and you're not quite sure if it's doing the trick. You'll A, B test it, right? Yeah. Just like we do free portfolio reviews for people, we do the same thing for 401k plans. It's a little bit more in depth because they're a little more complicated and... That is not a burden. Just getting the information, we do the rest of the work, and then we can give you at least a snapshot of what you have going on. Tom Parks, Director of Retirement Plan Services, Annex Wealth Management. Thank you. Thank you. Planning and investment insight from a fee-only fiduciary. And we put that in writing. You're listening to Money Talk on WTMJ. We're back. It's time for Ask Annex. You can submit your questions on our website at AnnexWealth.com. Just look for the Ask button. Our first one is from Jeffrey. I sold my stocks years ago and only invest with ETFs. Change my mind. Right. You know, there is uh, exchange-traded funds that really have become a phenomenon. I, I think two-thirds of the equities traded right now, I think, are through exchange-traded funds. But it is an unbelievable phenomenon that has happened. ETFs, Mark, have packaged the best part of mutual funds where it's not a single security risk and the, the advantages of daily trading without some of the tax ramifications. So there has been a huge shift away from active managed mutual funds into ETFs, by the way, and and this is something that happened to the mutual fund industry over the last 20 years. We'll see if the uh, if the tide changes. Well, for sure. So you're really balancing two things. You have the cost, which is the cost of active management, and sometimes that that really makes sense, and it does in our portfolios. We use active management where it makes sense, where we're willing to pay a manager to have boots on the ground, for instance, in a part of the world that we want to be invested in. Derek, or small caps, for or, or example. Small caps, right. You know, in, in Derek, in the small caps, and I'll come back to you, Mark, but. In 
in small caps, you think about the index, and there's a certain percentage of those companies that don't make any money at all. Why would you want to buy those? Well, a third of the companies in the Russell 2000 don't make any money, but sometimes you want to buy them because they're going up. But the reality is that managers had a very difficult time, active managers, keeping up with this bull market since 2009. That makes sense. They, They tend to carry cash. There are transaction costs involved, taxes involved. So it's been a really good period for the ETF industry. Now, to this person's question, if you're not going to spend the time to focus on individual names, do the research, because Wall Street has an edge, and you know, you're going to have to listen, listen to conference calls, read fundamental reports, and the like. If you don't have the time to do it, an ETF is a terrific option for you, and you can dollar-cost average it. I would caution people from day trading these things, because that's very difficult, and most people lose in day trading. Uh, but for a long-term strategy, like I tell my kids, you know, put 15% of your salary away every pay period and buy the S&P 500 Spider at a very low cost, and it's working for them, and it's a discipline that I think most people ought to employ. And Mark, let's go back to a really good point that you're talking about, control of taxation, a mutual fund versus an exchange-traded fund. Sure. A mutual fund has to, by rule, pay out all of its capital gains, short-term and long-term capital gains, throughout the year, and usually at the end of the year is when you see that happen. So sometimes you'll buy a mutual fund mid-year, and and the value of your shares might go down. You might still get a tax bill because the fund itself made money that year, even though you didn't own the shares when the fund was making money. That's not true in an ETF. In an ETF, it trades very much like a stock, so you can control the sale of that stock, that ETF in this particular case, and capture that capital gain when you want to. Danny, can we squeeze another one in? Let's go. Adam texts this one in. Apple or Microsoft? Well, first off, nice efficiency, Adam. Apple made some news on Thursday, right? Their chief design guy who'd been around for 20 years, really important guy, is leaving the company. He's going to be a consultant. Of course, Apple is his first client. It is. And Johnny Ive is the name of the the design guy that that has left Apple. And what impact it'll have on that company will be interesting to see, Dave. Apple of my Ive. Yeah, Apple of my Ive. Very good. But the fact is is that some people would argue that that Apple is now a service organization, that the design has been done. The iPhone is the iPhone, the Mac is the Mac, the iPad is the iPad. But it'll be interesting to see, Derek, what impact that has on that company, if any. But the question back to the texter is Apple or Microsoft? I actually like them both. In fact, a couple of weeks ago when the when the market was a little soft, particularly the tech sector on, on concerns about tariffs and the like, we added to our exposure in both Apple and Microsoft. Microsoft is just killing it on the cloud. The business is growing dramatically. It pays a a decent dividend. Apple is also doing well. Obviously, it's in the crosshairs of the Chinese. They could potentially get negatively impacted if these trade fears escalate. So frankly, I'd buy both. Got about 40 seconds. Anthony asks, is day trading still a thing? When was the peak? 10 years ago? Oh, yeah, sure. That, you know, we headed into, as you know, Derek, as he alluded to, was a former tech fund manager. And by the way, you know, that was an ugly time back in 1999, 2000. People were day trading in 15 seconds. What's your, what's your thoughts on that? I, I would just tell people not to do it. If you need to do it, you need to have a discipline. You need to use stop orders, which most people don't do. You've got to avoid taking positions overnight because you've got all sorts of overnight risk. The markets do a lot overnight and you just walk into a bad situation potentially. 15 seconds on the nose. Nice job. 1040. This is Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management. Website, AnnexWealth.com. Team Tech. Trust. Money Talk is straight talk from a local fee-only fiduciary. It's time to know the difference. This is Money Talk on WTMJ. 
Know the difference? It's Team Tech Trust, and trust comes from being a fee-only fiduciary. Mandy Nowashinsky is a CFP and tax planner. She heads our tax team at Annex Wealth Management. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. All right. One of the aspects of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act was the impact that it could potentially have on charitable giving. So let me just see if I got this right. Yep. There was a doubling of the standard deduction, and the thought was that would lead to more individuals to take that standard deduction rather than itemizing. And itemizing is where people put charitable deductions. Am I right on that? That is absolutely correct, yes. So when they made that larger, it made it harder for people to get over that threshold and get a benefit for their donations. Did you see if most people did that? Yeah, most people took the standard deduction. Again, it's much higher. New report from Giving USA confirms what the experts were thinking. Total charitable giving was down a little bit, 1.7%. And many are saying that, listen, that's one data point. That's Mm -hmm. not enough. You'd need to see years to see if that was a trend. Before we get too far, we need to point out that Americans really are givers. Up 9% since 2016. In fact, 2017 was a record year. So let's talk about charitable giving and different ways to do it. Because it's as I kind of research this, it seems that there's many different ways if you want to help. There are a lot of different ways. You know, a lot of people, the most common, give money to a religious or a church organization. A lot of people give stuff to goodwill. You know, those, and then you look at the other ways to give. A lot of people can give stock. You know, if you have an appreciated security, for instance, Apple, there's many different ways you can donate that. One is directly to the charity, giving them the stock, or you can do what's called a donor advised fund, and that's becoming more popular. Yeah, could you explain that? What is a donor advised fund? Is that a fancy name for something else? Um, it's kind of a fancy name for what a, um, come on, like a private foundation used to be, but it's much more simplified. So what a donor advised fund does is you take, for example, that Apple stock, you put it in that donor advised fund, can sell it once it's in that fund and manage it, and then you send money off to charity as you see fit. So you as the individual are managing that donor advised fund. From a tax standpoint, you get the deduction equal to the fair market value of that Apple stock when you put it in. So if Apple's worth $10,000, you put it in that donor advised fund, you get a tax deduction for 10000 but that stock might have cost you 1000 So rather than paying tax on that gain, you kind of sheltered it by putting it in that donor advised fund to give to charity at some point as you see fit. You might have even worked on this for my dad when he was alive because he, he set up that scholarship fund yes, at the high absolutely. school, right? So yep. he had this stock that he had had forever. He bought a small company and it got gobbled by another one, gobbled by another one, and he just never sold it. That's what most of the funds came from. Is that what that was? Yes, absolutely. It's kind of a different variation of a donor advised fund. Okay. What about donating assets like retirement accounts or even things like life insurance? I've seen that that is done. Is that? So from an estate planning standpoint, if you die with like an IRA, you'd much rather that go to a charity because the charity doesn't have to pay tax on the IRA it inherits. Whereas life insurance, yes, you can leave life insurance to charity, but you might want to leave that to a, a beneficiary, you know, a family member, and then leave the retirement account to a charity. Again, that way they're getting tax-free assets in your family, the life insurance, but then the retirement account is going to the charity where they don't have to pay tax. We're kind of getting into Jill's area. We are. But okay, so are those decisions that are made while somebody is still alive or can that be done by the executors of the estate? That has to be done during life. So if you are a charitably inclined person and you know you want to leave money to charity at death, that's just some planning you have to do. But during your life, you know, retirement accounts, the most popular verbiage we hear is a QCD, you know, sending money from your IRA to a charity. 
as a way to help avoid some of the tax on taking that required minimum distribution. What about when people would donate maybe art or jewelry or real estate? Is that a little bit different because the price is kind of fluid on those things? It's, it is a little different. There are a lot more hoops you have to jump through from the IRS standpoint to make sure you get all your ducks in a row before you deduct that. Real estate is a very difficult asset to donate in that respect. Got to get appraisals. You got to get letters. You've got to do all this stuff. You have to have all these forms signed by various people before you can deduct it. And it's very audit heavy. So if you're doing it, you want to make sure you're you're dotting your I's and crossing your T's. But less people are doing that now. When you say audit heavy, is that thing that is that like red flag audit heavy? Is that what you mean? Right. So you're most likely, you know, when I say audit heavy, that's just something the IRS looks at as a place to audit. So if one year you give to charity a five thousand, and then next year you give a hundred thousand via an apartment complex or something like that, yeah, that's going to raise a flag from going to five thousand to a hundred thousand as a deduction. Mandy Noshinsky is a CFP and a tax planner. She heads up the tax team at Annex Wealth Management. Earlier, you you talked about goodwill, and of course, everybody, you know, <laughs> they they list the pair of jeans or whatever. And I I found that very confusing when I was kind of going through my taxes. I had no idea what to declare the value of yep. that. And and so, is that audit heavy or is that is that uh, bumpy? Uh, so if you give more than let's say five, it's five hundred dollars to Goodwill. You got to itemize out what you gave. So the higher you get above that $500 mark, the more likely it is that there's going to be questions. Again, because you got to detail it out. And most, you know, some people don't keep the best records of all the stuff that was in that garbage bag that they dumped off. Okay. So what about foundations? You mentioned that earlier. That sounds like a bigger thing. You hear about these foundations, right? Are they complex? They are very complex and different from a donor advised fund. So a donor advised fund is something you manage generally yourself through a custodian. Um, No separate tax filing. Don't need an attorney to draft any documents with a foundation or a private foundation. Got to file a tax return. You got to send a certain amount of money out of the the account to charity every year, and you have to have articles of organization. You've got to work with the IRS to make sure you are a tax exempt organization. So a lot more complex, which is why people are tending to use donor advised funds more than setting up foundations. Foundations tend to be bigger dollars. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, that's why I'm not in that. Okay. <laughs> In the last year, I've made donations to at least three GoFundMe campaigns, and not that it would have mattered, but that's not a charitable donation, is it? How come? Because it's not a qualifying charity that the person, generally it's a person you're giving to. So that's, you have to look, is it a 501c3? That's what a qualifying charity generally is. Um, if it's not, then you don't get to deduct it. Again, most people are setting up GoFundMes for a, you know, a personal reason or to help a cause that they want. But again, you're sending the money generally to a person, not an actual charity. Mandy, thank you. Mandy Nowashinsky, tax planner at Annex Wealth Management. Thank you for joining us. Thanks. 1051, this is Money Talk Annex Wealth Management. Our website, AnnexWealth.com. Click that Get Started button this weekend and we'll get you going next week. W277-CV and WTMJ Milwaukee. From the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is News Radio WTMJ. The longest-running weekly personal finance radio show in Wisconsin. This is Money Talk on WTMJ. We're back. Thanks for riding along. This is Money Talk. It's uh, Saturday, June 29th. Hey, guys, I want to congratulate you. I mean, I kind of climbed on the, the Annex bandwagon, well, five years ago when I started you know, doing Saturday mornings here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've been an employee for a year and a half, so I, I really... 
I've got it's been the little... best year and a half of your life. Yeah, I, go ahead and admit I, it. I think so. You probably won't bring it up, but I want to congratulate us. Uh, we've been named to the 29th edition of the Financial Times 300 Top Registered Investment Advisors, and that is the fourth time. And I looked at the criteria, and it's not easy. So nice job. Yeah, well, and it's not easy, and thank you. And it's not easy. And you know, I think the really good point in there is registered investment advisor. And I'll tell you, that makes brokers' blood boil because of the fact that this is a different model altogether than what we grew up with. This is, you know, in fact, I had somebody in the office, in our Fister office uh, yesterday, and they asked me that very specific question. They, they're with a brokerage firm. They did not know. And this is a sophisticated, well-heeled person did not know what an RIA is. There's and lots, it, there's it's important. Lots of, there's lots of alphabet soup, so can you run through them? There's RIA, Registered Investment Advisor. That's what we are. Yep, and, and it's important. This is a huge distinction, and, and I hope people pay attention this morning because a registered investment advisor and a brokerage firm are two completely different things. And then you put into that the insurance industry, which is yet a third animal in the conversation. And you look at the way that people view these, and sometimes they, they just look at them as financial salespeople. Registered investment advisors are different. They're held to a different standard of care. And we talk about it every Saturday morning on the show, a fiduciary. But the Financial Times list, it's an objective way of looking at different firms, and we're really humbled by the fact that we're considered, and then that we were included in the list, because the criteria are the size of the firm, the growth of the firm, but more importantly is its reputation and compliance record. I think that's really an important part of it, is are you acting as a fiduciary? What do the regulators say about you? What do your customers say about you? And to be included on the list is a pretty heady thing, and we're, we're, we're really humbled by it. I'm not surprised that you said that the compliance part is the, is the better it's part, part of it. that. It's, it's yeah, certainly no, I part think of you the said it was a, a bigger part, but uh, again, here, here we are uh, talking about fee-only fiduciary, a question that you have to ask your current relationship. Are you a fee-only fiduciary? And I'll tell you, it's going to get a lot more play because of a new regulation that's trying to get some life and, tr- and trying to get some seeds, and that is Regulation BI, Regulation Best Interest. It does not affect the RIA industry. This is a FINRA rule to expand what's the suitability. Now, I guess I know that was very complex, but again, suitability and Regulation BI is something that is going to raise up their standards, does not really affect the RIA industry, in my opinion. No, because we've already been there. I mean, we've been there for decades in, in the fiduciary care standards. So you're trying to raise the standard of care for those people who are selling things under the non-fiduciary standard of the best interest. It does get complicated. And I think to your point, Dave, is trying to get that answer. And don't let them off the hook. Ask the question and wait for an answer that you're comfortable with. And make, Our, make them put it in writing. And make them put it in writing. And that's right. where I'm going to get to with this because... If you're going to ask the question, are you going to act in my best interest, you're going to get a yes. But the fact is, for most people, it's a standard of care that relates to the sale of a product. It doesn't relate to the nature of the relationship long term. And I think that's what you need to get to is getting to a standard of care with the person that you're going to work with, that you're entrusting your money to, that you're trying to get to your financial dreams with. And if you're going to work with somebody along that pursuit, make sure it's somebody who has a legal obligation to act in your best interest at all times and to eliminate the conflicts of interest that are inherent in broker-dealers. When you're selling product and there's a commission involved, I don't care if it's cars, lemonade, or financial products, you have an incentive to sell more stuff to make more money. That's not true in a fiduciary standard of care. So look for a fee-only advisor, and as you said, Dave, make sure you get it in writing. 
what are the initials we're looking for when you're dealing with an advisor? CFP? Yeah, CFP. And, and you could be in any one of those industries. You can be an insurance agent, a broker, or an RIA, and be a certified financial planner. That is a good thing, it is, and it means they went through a series of exams, and they understand what financial planning is, and a financial plan is required. And we're loaded with them. Well, we have a lot of CFPs. We have a lot of JDs, Juris Doctorates. Uh, we have a, a lawyer. We have CPAs. CFAs. Uh, CFAs. And so all those designations. Again, as you said, it's alphabet soup. Who is working on my best interest? Who is working as a fiduciary? Is it a fee-only fiduciary? And who is the team? These are the questions. There you go. Know the difference, team. Tech Trust. You can start at AnnexWealth.com. Advice and opinions expressed during Money Talk are solely that of the hosts or guests of Annex Wealth Management and not WTMJ Radio or Good Karma Brands Milwaukee, LLC.